Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Seed Table podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. This is your host, Gans, and today I'm with Federico Travella, CEO and founder of Novica, a company that helps businesses unlock cash stuck in outstanding invoices and improve their cash flow. Novicap has offices in Spain, Amsterdam and the UK and they're on track to finance over 1 billion euros by the end of 2021. Federico is a geologist by training and before Novicap he was a managing director at Rocket Internet in Southeast Asia. He has lived in multiple countries and speaks seven languages, so he has a unique perspective on life, technology and business that is reflected in our conversation. In today's episode, we cover absolutely everything. Federico's origin story, including his pivot from geologist to tech entrepreneur, what he learned during his time at Rocket Internet, why Federico started Novicap, their approach to fundraising and their unique hiring process, how COVID-19 might impact European tech hubs such as Spain, the role of government in fostering entrepreneurship, and the future of fintech. I was introduced to Federico by a C-Tape reader, and I couldn't be happier I got to know him. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hey Federico, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining me at the C-Table podcast. How's everything? Doing well, thank you, and thanks for, uh, for having me here uh, today. So, by way of introduction, why don't you tell me a bit more about uh, Novicap and what you guys do? Novicap is, is a fintech, right? Financial technology uh, scale-up, which is in the business of developing working capital finance products, both in the SME, right? So small, medium companies and the corporate segment. So that is what we try to have been developing for, uh, for yeah, more than five years now. We're active in the Benelux area, so Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and uh, Spain. We have offices in Amsterdam, Madrid, and London, and also uh, sunny Barcelona. You're a geologist by training. How do you go from geologist to technology entrepreneur? Yeah, that, that has been quite of a <laughs> career change, so to speak. So I, I think it's a, it's a story worth sharing. So, so let me perhaps share a little secret first. I've never really had a passion for tech itself, right? And the relationship has been a little complicated between us historically. And you, you may be familiar with some of these um, studies which categorize your prospective customers, right, of a product or technology from early adopters to laggards, right? And quite definitely, I am in the laggards category. I was late to having a computer. I was late to having um, a phone, a smartphone, right? I was late you know, even to having a girlfriend and perhaps also there's a bit of a correlation between the letter and, uh, and the phone. I've never had a Facebook account. I've never had a Twitter account, let alone Instagram, right? And I think if I weren't active as a tech entrepreneur, I would probably sporadically go online and, and, and check my emails, right? So now before you think I'm completely uh, nuts, right, is that I do appreciate things about technology, right? So I think it's a great tool, an enabler for building great businesses, disrupt old-fashioned businesses as well. And I've been lucky enough to, to witness throughout my career that, you know, you can really 
leverage and, and, and use technology for, for building great businesses. When I was a rocket, eventually, while we were building for e-commerce companies, disrupting traditional retail, and now at Novicap, we are using financial technology to disrupt uh, more traditional banks. And you're right to point out that I'm indeed trained as a geologist, and that's definitely been a game change, or let's say a career change better, and a gradual one since, since I've indeed studied geology. And in that process, I think it's very interesting or, or, or important better to um, stress that the Federico I am today is more of you know, the, the finished product, or let's say a work in progress, because I don't think there's ever such thing as a, as a, as a, as a finished product. And I think in that process, we often tend to, to forget the, let's say, the process we had to go through if you were not born as Mark Zuckerberg. So it's been a 10-year education. How did, it, how did I you know, get started? I think I started with um, a very keen interest in, in business and I'm making money at a very young age. Right? So this has led to many ventures, right? if you can even call it ventures, during my teenage and university years. I was mostly living um, in, in Belgium uh, back then. And so in my teenage years, uh, starting, I think, at about 10 years, possibly even younger, I, I fell in love with this, uh, this card game called uh, Magic the Gathering. A bit geeky, you can say uh, nerdy. And these cards were really expensive. Some even you know, trading hands for, for thousands of euros. And so my competitive streak, I guess, pushed me to get as many cards as possible, right? And play the game in, in tournaments like uh, professionally. And very often in those, those games, you're facing 30-year-old, but not infrequently 40-year-old um, players who have much more funding, right? Available than me as a teenager. And it was a bit of a capitalist game eventually because the one who could buy the best cars could usually also win. And some of these cars were trading much cheaper in the US, right? Than in Europe. And so I pitched my mom to let me use her computer, internet access, and her credit cards. And she agreed. And of course, I was also a gradual process because, of course, you know, I maxed out her cards and we had a couple of hiccups along the way. But in different wars, I had the infrastructure, I had the communication channel, and I had the venture capital to, you know, to rock and roll. And so I placed my first orders in, on eBay, US. I received those at home. I sold them for like a 50% profit margin. And I still remember how exciting that was that, you know, I made a few euros and now I could perhaps expand upon that, right? And then build something bigger. And so starting that year, I bought thousands and thousands of cars. And, you know, you could have imagined that, you know, binders, drawers, there was cars everywhere in my house. And then I also realized I actually didn't even need to receive those cars and handle the mess, right? I could ship them directly from my U.S. supplier to my end customer in Europe. And this way I could you know, take advantage of the arbitrage opportunity and avoid handling the mess. And this is what we call today dropshipping. And so in hindsight, it was totally awesome to have gained the trust of my mom. And you know, I must have traded thousands of, of cars and, and you know, at the same time funded my game as well. Naturally, at, at uni, right, you, you develop some other interests than, than playing cards, right? And that business kind of phased out. And at uni, I decided to study geology, um, not because I was passionate about that, animals and rocks, right? But rather that all the rest of the options really seemed dull to me, 
right? So then a geologist travels to exotic locations and the search of, of gold or whatever these people do, right? And that seemed pretty compelling to um, the adventurer in me. And so looking back at the decision, I've been quite satisfied with it because studying sciences inevitably give you also a more scientific view, right? On, on, on the world and, and life and, and business in general. Just, you know, thinking about today, if, if Trump had studied, say, medicine, the U.S. situation would have been managed very differently with COVID-19. So during these studies, I, I worked in, in Italy on a, on a couple of mining projects. I worked in the dredging industry in Brazil. I worked in Panama on one of the biggest construction uh, projects in history. And so the hands-on work with travel to exotic places was really what, what was compelling to me as an entrepreneur. However, as any other student, a lot of my time was, was spent outside uni. And as a student, naturally, one of the first things you need is the student housing, right? You need to, you need to live somewhere. And so the idea of just renting um, a flat or, or a house really appeared boring to me, right? And so we realized that many of the building our owners, right, the, 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 the defaults owning large buildings, we're also plagued by vandalism, by, by squatters, right? And so we got ourselves this deal that we guarded an abandoned building in exchange for, for housing, for pretty much living there. So in other words, we were living in a place or protecting it, right? By um, uh, the building, by, by living there. And so this space became this launch pad for all sorts of wild ideas. And so you have to imagine the space as you know, the size of a soccer field, right? It consists of a warehouse, it consists of a truck maintenance shop, and we had all of that for ourselves. And so the comfort naturally in, that we enjoyed there varied, you know, we went through a couple of stages there as well. You know, the seat stage, so to speak, we, we had nothing, right? There was no heating, no electricity, no water. We used the toilets of a graveyard next door. We roasted pizzas on a gas heater, it was pretty basic. Then we build out the space, we, we install trailers, which we call bedrooms, even one hanging from a ceiling. We installed a kitchen, we connected utilities. Um, so we did everything ourselves during uni hours and some of them outside uni hours. And so when the space was ready, we dubbed it the loft, right? So because it had gotten some, some shape. And so we, again, that became like a launch pad for, for you know, throwing the biggest parties. It was next to a river, so we moored a, a little boat, which we used for romantic cruises. We could play paintball in the warehouse. And so it was pretty much the best time of our lives, I think. It didn't cost us a single cent. And to, to be clear, we weren't really doing that because of our, out of financial need. We're doing it as, was simply the most adventurous thing to do. And so one of the things we also realized that we could build interesting companies from there. Right? And so one of the companies we launched from there was a, a mobile bicycle uh, repair company. So a lot of uh, students and, and people in, in, in the Benelux, they, they cycle, right? And so they get a, they puncture a tire and they're in the middle of nowhere and they need to repair that tire. And so we built um, our first company, which will dispatch people to repair those bicycles, those, those flat tires. So it was a fantastic space. My friends ended up living there for a decade until they were disrupted themselves. And they, you know, the owner sold the plots, making room for some ugly uh, new developments. This is how, how history goes, right? And as for me, when I, when I graduated with my master's in, in 2011, I realized that doing more of the geology work probably be quite limiting, right? It would also shield me from any business interactions. That, that's kind of how 
the technical field works. And in the end, also climbing the food chain in a large organization takes considerable time. And so I decided to complete my pivot, right, from geologists to entrepreneurs after a friend introduced me to Rocket Internet, suggesting I could learn how to launch and scale ventures at an institutional scale. I had a phone interview for probably like 15 minutes with a VP who was, I remember having dinner at the same time. And one week later, I took a one-way flight to Sydney, Australia. And so Rocket became for me the entrepreneurial MBA because you could operate a high growth tech scale up, right? Through multiple stages from seed to growth over a very condensed uh, period of time. And that's not easy to find. And I think it also ensures the steepest learning curve. So I was lucky enough to, to hit the ground, of course, running in a company which became successful because obviously many ventures didn't scale. But in some, to me, becoming an entrepreneur was a gradual process and simply, I think in hindsight, the, the most adventurous uh, career path I could take. <laughs> well, that's, that's definitely a, a lot to take in and I want to spend right. a lot of time. <laughs> I want to spend time on a bunch of different places and, and we'll get to Rocket Internet right now. But it's very interesting that you consider yourself, in, in, at least when it comes to technology adoption, as a laggard, but you're extremely adventurous, you're extremely creative, you make decisions like taking a one-way flight to Sydney in one week's time, and you also lived uh, on a bunch of different places. I also know you speak like seven languages. Do you have any process for learning, for learning those, or was that just a forcing function of where you lived and your life, essentially? I, I think that that was also very much a function of uh, that my mother languages are not spoken by many other people. So I'm native in Dutch and, and Italian. And of course, outside Belgium, Netherlands and Italy, nobody speaks those languages. So naturally, I was, I was forced to, to, to pick up others. I also had a pre-international childhood, uh, spent a bit of time in, in Africa which obviously is mostly uh, French-speaking. And of course, people in Belgium speak French as well. So I think learning languages from a very young, early age is probably the best you can do. Also, if you can enable that as a parent, right? I think that, that, that that's uh, fantastic. Later on in life, we, we tend to, to have difficulty spending enough time and, and, uh, and focus on learning languages, even though I think it keeps your brain very well awake. So I wouldn't say that today I'm, I'm actively learning languages. I'm obviously leveraging a bit my the other languages I've learned at a very young age, so picking up Portuguese or Spanish was relatively straightforward. But learning new languages is not really something I'm actively uh, pursuing right now. Maybe AI will, you know, make that uh, obsolete the idea anyhow. I'm not sure if I want that. <laughs> we'll see. Um, let's let's go to Rocket Internet. You were there for how long? So after your flight to Sydney. I was there close to, to three years, which is not at the time many many people lasted, but it was it was a, a very fantastic experience for me. And I think probably if you if you if you ask about you know what what, what did Rocket do to people, right? I think for many people it's been a very you know life changing experience. And I think if you track back a lot of entrepreneurs and also innovation inevitably in Europe, it's probably be be one of those companies which. Um, has hit, you know, has has written history, and that's I think a fantastic, you know, been fantastic to be part of of that that uh, rocket uh, mafia in a way as well. You were there running a few e-commerce ventures, right? 
So can you, for people who don't know, can you explain the rocket internet model to the audience? Well, sure thing. So the rocket model was was unique in 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 a way because um, I mean maybe taking one step back, many people forget that the, the venture builder model, which eventually that's what rocket is, and, and later on, of course, they've they've positioned themselves more of a venture capitalist. But the rocket model in 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 the early days is not something that didn't exist before, right? Even if you think about large um, U.S.-based uh, uh, venture capitalists, like even some of the biggest names in history, like KPCB, Kleiner Perkins, they they actually also had that model running during their early days. So they would identify entrepreneurs or co-found the company together with the entrepreneur and take a relatively large um, ownership very early on. And so I think what 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 Ali eventually, you know, Ali Zammer, one of the, the three brothers who um, Star Rocket, right? I mean, he obviously a story in, in itself, but he had really learned during his, his thesis about U.S. tech execution, right? So how do you build them and scale companies? And he decided to to apply those best practices um, in Europe and later also in emerging markets. And I think his main unfair competitive advantage, right, were access to talent, institutional capital especially in emerging markets, great, great advantage. And then expertise in execution and sharing of, of best and you know, also very often worst, uh, worst practices. Tech came a little bit secondary. It was not really your, your main advantage, at least initially. Right? And so having you know, spent considerable time there, I think what everyone will tell you is that Holly was, was good to strip away all the, you know, the fraud that typically lays over um, startups, right? He stripped away the baristas, right? The Aaron shares, the you know the the, the perks, right? The, the craft beer you you find in some startups, and he replaced that by picnic tables, right? By Swedish design furniture in general, IKEA, and and perhaps the occasional water cooler because you really don't want to drink water, say in Jakarta, right, from the tap, and so. What I learned is that that strategy, right, of scaling um, companies through a venture builder model, really works, of course, in proven business models, right? You need to have a bit of a comfort that what you're launching is uh, is somehow already been tested elsewhere, even if it's a different market. But it works really well for sales and marketing driven B two C models. E commerce, obviously, being a good example, you take you know Amazon, you take Alibaba, and you apply it in into Southeast Asia, Lazada, right? So I think the model is a bit harder to scale in heavily regulated verticals. Think fintech, for example, Rocket never really built something very successful in fintech. Zencap, um, Lendico, meh, nothing too too exciting right there. So I think the 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 model applies itself just really well into into certain categories, and in some categories, unfortunately, a little bit less. So. I think in, in hindsight, we we can definitely credit Rocket Internet and, and, and Ali Zamer with building that machine, fueling it with a lot of venture capital, a lot of growth capital, training thousands of people who then also ventured out and, and build up their, their own companies. And that, I think that's great. The, the way I usually sum up Rocket Internet is that they are fantastic at taking over categories where the biggest barriers to entry are capital, 
on talent or, or knowledge. But I'm surprised by how people still underestimate how hard that is to still do, right? Even if you have the capital and the and the knowledge and the knowledge. Um, I'm wondering what's what's something counterintuitive about going through hyper growth, or what's something you didn't expect from your time over there. So the capital, of course, was 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 a weapon, right? And and uh, of course, we were building to sell in a way as well. So you 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 deploy that capital very aggressively. So so that's I think on, on the on the good side now. Perhaps what I've learned, or what was something I didn't fully realize before I joined them, that on on, on the bad side, you know, the, the talent was great, right? But we kept losing it, right? So the turnover was was way too high. And why why was that? I think we had never really defined a culture, right? Values, right? And even if there was such thing as a culture, it just happened. And in probably like if I were to, to come up with one value that we we had, even though it was not written down, it would have been execution, right? So that was, was really what, what I think the, what was happening. And so that hands-off um, approach to the culture, right? And this relentless focus on, on execution and growth, you, you, you get a, a management that also start to mimic its leader, right? It's, it's great leader, Oliver Zammer. And what comes out of that is that you get a lot of animal farm going on, right? So you, you get a lot of behavior that, that is probably not very uh, constructive, but also not sustainable for the, for the long term. So during my you know, close to three years there, I, to give you one example, I've never had a single time where you know, a manager or, or anyone in the organization would generally ask me, how are you doing? Right? Or having a conversation about something not growth or not KPI performance related. You know, politics, gossip, nepotism, sexism, these things really only deplete everyone's um, energy and they come with a price, right? And so not surpri- surprisingly, many people decide to, to, to leave and it didn't last that long. Now, all the symptoms, right, of a broken culture were there. We had this heavily ill patient, but to be honest, we're not really interested in treating it. And so most of us were also being this, you know, obedient participants rather than critical observers trying to change things. And what I learned from that is that besides that it's, it's, so, it, it, it's so easy to get into that, that mindset yourself, it's a slippery slope in, in many ways. But so what I also learned from that is that in the short term, you can get away with a lot of shit as long as you grow, right? So growth is everyone's main motivator. And of course, when things go a little less as planned or growth is not that great, you risk your team leaving. And so that's why investing in culture is still one of the most important things you can do today as a founder, right? And that's also, I think, why at, at NoviCap, we, we, we had to also think about those things much more actively because I had seen that it can also go wrong. And so, of course, these, these, these elements were improved at Rocket over time, right? Because if it would have been that bad, of course, Rocket wouldn't have had success stories such as Lazada and it's one of the biggest I think you know investors in Europe today still launching the occasional startup and so surely the the culture has changed for good and had right but I think in hindsight many of us regret getting too much focused on the growth rather than you know the human elements of, of, of the game as well and that effect also you know, it leaves a bit of scar tissue Right? So you, you have to heal from that. 
And so it has happened to me that in certain situations, I, I have to actively remember, okay, we may have done it that way, a rocket, but you know, let's take a different approach here. We were covering sort of the negative aspects, but if you could export one good positive thing uh, from the rocket internet model to Novigap, what would it be? One thing is obviously always hard. I, I think or or dedication to 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 the, to the business to the cost right um, has been has been hundred percent. I think that that's very important as an entrepreneur and. The, the best entrepreneurs I do, they take very concentrated bets. I think when you see, for instance, an entrepreneur who has you know, three companies in parallel, then he has a consulting business, I always wonder how they do it, right? If you're not Elon Musk, right? Because of course, he has the platform to do a lot of exciting things in parallel. But for most people, I think um, taking those concentrated bets, of course, can be expensive because it's more risky. However, I think if you really put all your energy behind something and you really focus on that, the best results will follow. And I think that that's what Rocket also was good at, that you know, they pumped a lot of money very quickly into one business, hoping to scale very quickly. And that would just require 100% education from everyone. And so by focusing also everyone internally on that one cost, which in, this, in their case was obviously growing the top line, was was paying off for them. And so I think at Novicap, we've also been you know, as entrepreneurs, very, very focused and, and trying to avoid any, any distractions. And I think that that focus on has, has definitely also paid off. Perfect. I, I want to take us out of the rocket internet rabbit hole and, and into the, what I really want to get into, which is Novicap. So I'm curious, why did you decide to tackle this particular problem versus the millions of other problems out there? And I would even say that as an entrepreneur, you obviously keep having um, hundreds of, of IDs uh, when you encounter new problems. But so in my pivot from geologist to entrepreneur, I had to consider the option of doing an MBA. So I you know, thought an MBA would help me in, in building uh, successful uh, tech companies. So I applied to a couple of business schools and I was admitted to, to a YESA business school in, in Barcelona. Now, in that process, I will also explain that the, the, the work experience I had was, was, was too limited to join immediately. And so they pre-admitted me very much offering me a pre-admission very much. And so in two or three years time, I, I, I would get to know the school better and then join with the right experience. And so in that process, I first of all found my, my co-founder. So I, I co-founded Novicap with Mark, who was also admitted at YESE. At and so naturally, we, we started bouncing back ideas because we hit off very well. And so we said, okay, one day we'll, we'll start a company together. And so we, we looked at many ideas. And so the reason why eventually we're attracted the most to, to Novicamp and FinTech is that I think for starters, financial services is the biggest industry in the world, right? So it drives almost everything else. So both good and bad, right? So imagine COVID-19 without government bailouts, right? Or imagine the oil and gas industry without financial backing. So it's, it's very much the, the underlying substrate, right? On which, on which today's society is built. So you have no lack of market in financial services and that's always a great start. Of course, you need to get a bit more granular over time. So secondly, I think when we looked specifically at, at SME finance, working capital finance for small companies, 
the, 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 we realized that the unit economics were not profitable from buckets. And so technology, or, or better, the, the lack thereof, was, was driving those, those inefficiencies and, and making it an unprofitable segment to, to banks. And so when we then looked at you know, who was solving this problem outside the banks, the entrance in FinTech, because back, back in, in 2014, FinTech was, was still quite, quite, quite new or quite early, the entrance we, we saw in, in, in FinTech were not really convincing, especially in Spain, which then eventually became our first market, they didn't really have the resources to scale. And so they made a number of mistakes and uh, we saw, okay, we actually can execute this better. And so of course, when you start a company, you know, to be honest, back then, we didn't really knew the dimensions of the beast, right? So it wasn't a total wet finger in the air, but we we're definitely not considering all the aspects of, of launching a thing. So on the other hand, also as entrepreneurs, if you knew everything around the problem, you will probably never start either. So, so I think in, in, in hindsight, it's probably the right balance you have to find. And, and so what, what I've also learned there in, in, in starting the business and, and perhaps useful for aspiring entrepreneurs is that you always need some sort of trigger to start, especially when the timelines of co-founders don't necessarily overlap. And so some founders, they, you know, they get fired and they start a company. Some folks, they hate their bosses so much that they, they rage quit and they, they start a company. Some folks are just not employable, right? And then they start a company. In, in our case, it was, it was quite straightforward. So we used the, the admittance of or getting admitted to the Techstars Barclays Accelerator in London as a great trigger to start a business. And also at a program, we could learn much more about financial services, refine the ID, hire the right you know, technical talent to build the product. And that was a great trigger. But so in, 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 in hindsight, there's a lot of products or, or businesses you can build, but it's eventually always a combination of factors that lead you to re refine the idea the best, right? which was for us, Barclays Techstars helped us a lot in that regard. And then you just have to run with it as, as, as quickly as possible. Your first market was Spain. Uh, and in, in the 2014 Techstars demo day, you joked something like, who the hell, hell wants to build a business in Spain? I'm wondering, why did you pick Spain? Did you see the complexity of doing the business back then as a moat? Or what was their thought process? We consider a lot of markets and we, we, we looked at a lot of, of data where we would launch first. It's true that, let's say, our combined networks of Mark and I were, were the strongest in Spain, especially um, through ESA Business School. Now, I think, again, the, the data is, is always very different than reality. And Spain has a number of challenges, which, which we definitely underestimate. I think uh, building a tech company in Spain is, is, is not uh, the easiest over with a Spanish uh, target customer. So in hindsight, we probably, again, didn't appreciate the, the magnitude or the size of the beast. However, because indeed we, we had, especially in, in the initial years, it didn't scale that quickly, right? So we, we definitely uh, struggled a bit before we, we uh, so to speak, achieved escape velocity. I think that struggle also made us very defensive in terms of, of, of organization and in terms of how we innovate in our product. So to give you one, one example, we, because we, we indeed achieved a, a product market fit quite late, it forced us to rethink about pricing. 
And pricing is probably one of the, the most neglected aspects of, of a startup, of, of any tech company. And so forcing ourselves to think about pricing really led us to come up with a pretty unique pricing model, which, which really also contribute to, to, to achieving that escape velocity. And even to the degree, actually, that, that my co-founder teaches a case study on, on, on that pricing model at, at ESA. But so in, in hindsight, we, we are very satisfied with having launched in Spain because we became the market leader. Many others didn't make it. Right? So in the last five, five years plus, we, we saw many other fintechs uh, shutting down for a variety of reasons. But we managed to get you know, the institutional backing, the pricing model right, and a good understanding of our customer. And then, of course, uh, the customer satisfaction that, that came out of that and that uh, I think made us, made us, uh, made us succeed. So you went through Techstars, took a while to, to get this famous product market fit, but now you're growing quite fast, but you raised less than 3 million in total. Why did you decide to take that route versus a more traditional financing model, uh, particularly coming from a rocket internet background? Yeah, that's true. I, I, I was definitely conditioned to raise capital <laughs> and lots of it, right? At, at Rocket, we, I, I never seen a profitable company or a trend towards profitability. So raising capital was a must and, uh, and for them likely the right strategy, right? So I think they had understood that very well, that it was the, the right strategy to raise large rounds and, and capital efficiency was, was of course secondary in, in that regard. You would achieve that later on. So first, I think, the size of rounds fluctuates quite heavily. So back in 2015, when we, when we raised our seed round, this was one of the larger seed rounds uh, that year. So, and then until COVID-19 hit this year, you know, it may have been one of the more modestly sized uh, rounds. And I think again, in the coming years, you will see this changing and then probably compressing again, right? So here also, I think we never set out with the ID to raise only 3 million in seed capital, right? It was not the blueprint uh, design of, of, of the, the fundraising strategy when we, when we got started. And so, as I mentioned, we, we, we achieved our product market fit relatively late. And so during that struggle, of course, we consider raising more capital because the, the, the process to, to indeed find the right customers, to have the right product, longer than expected. And so we, inter we even exchanged some offers, even you know, term sheets, but in hindsight, I'm actually quite happy we didn't re raise more money back then, but rather reduced burn a bit, right? And we went through that you know, number of product um, iterations to then achieve a product market fit. And so in our case, but again, every company is different and, and, and many unfortunately are less lucky. It, you know, things turn out really well. We didn't become a zombie company. We didn't become a lifestyle business, right? But we managed to just to, to, uh, to grow really quickly uh, from 2018 onwards, three to five X year on year, and have been profitable since last year. So today we have, what we would say metrics, right, of revenue, GMV and so on, of a series B stage company. However, we've raised 10 times less capital than some of our peers. And of course, especially today following COVID-19, investors are taking to, to take notes, notice, right, of, of this. And especially in the macroeconomic environment today, we, we also should be able to be counter-cyclical, which is you know, an expensive word for that the tide is, is in, our, in our advantage, right? We will not be swimming against the tides in, in, this, um, in this crisis, 
with, with the pride. And that's, of course, um, opening up the doors again for potentially raising more capital. So we don't exclude raising more capital because I think also now we, we, can, we can deploy it as a very good weapon. And so in that, in that process of, of raising capital, I've also learned that every company is different, right? So you can build a successful company with or without capital. In our case, we needed seed capital, right? Because building technology requires a lot of upfront cost and building tech is expensive. And for other companies, there may be other factors to consider, right? Such as how quickly does the competition scale? How much do they raise? How is the market developing and so on? But so then if you raise that money, also in what we've learned is that, you know, you better raise it from the right investors, right? And I think we've always strategized very openly with our syndicate of how do we, how do we continue the, the, the fundraise strategy. And they, they've realized, okay, this is not the typical company which has to raise every you know, 18 to 24 months. And the numbers are great. So, so they also respect that. And I think that that's also what eventually this whole tech uh, space is about, right, is that you know, there's no one rule. What is true, however, is that the more venture capital, the more capital you raise, the more rules you get. Yeah, and the, you're essentially taking opportunities off the table with every new fundraise when it comes to exit optionality. So you're 50 people right now, roughly? That's right, about 50 people. Yeah, so you were growing very fast, as you said, three, five X a year. You have very aggressive goals, one billion finance by 2021, but no aggressive hiring or scaling sort of yeah, ideas. How do you balance both the super aggressive goals with a small team? So we are, we are investing and we, we are obviously expanding our, our teams because we, we need more talents to, to, of course, achieve our, our, our goals. What, what we don't do is we don't, you know, blindfoldly add people as, as, as we go. So I think we, we, we work with, with internal business plans. We work with, with uh, a number of models that we run and we make the investment decisions that way. Of course, it is true that if you have 30 million in the bank versus 3 million in the bank, you make investment decisions very differently. And so naturally from that perspective, you, you, you make them potentially a bit slower, but we think we'd make them more sustainable. And so that discrepancy doesn't really necessarily have to exist between you know, high growth and, and, and very ambitious targets and, and, and potentially slower investment. Eventually, you want to have real metrics over time that start to count, such as revenue per employee, what's the productivity. And I think for any company, eventually, if you want to become a public company or you are looking at a, at a big acquisition process, these are the metrics also that will be looked at, not only your technology. And so... We're probably just a little bit earlier than, than, than other scale-ups of really looking and then deep diving in those metrics and making them more sustainable. Perfect. That was, that was a great answer. Um, you mentioned you don't add people blindfully to the team. How's your hiring process like? What do you optimize for? Hiring is, is one of those things which I, I believe we've, we've improved dramatically over time and and you know we've now gone through literally thousands of, of interviews, right? And, and not only me personally, but you know we have now an organization for doing so. So one thing we, we've done very early on, and one of our of our advisors um, actually came up with with that idea is to to put in place a very strict hiring procedure or, or hiring process. 
And so that starts much earlier than looking at candidates. So if you want to hire someone at NoviCap, please, please do. You want to have great talent. However, you got to make this mini business plan. And so it starts with what we call a scorecard, which very much is a summary of what are the, the what's a person that you're going to hire? What is that person tasked with? Right? What's the mission of that person? Right? I want to hire a sales manager that who, you know, who's going to be in charge of, of managing sales operations, uh, sales hiring, and oversight of uh, the day-to-day -day metrics in the, the outbound sales team, example. And so when you start with that scorecard, you very much force everyone around the table, right? The hiring manager, HR, potentially founders, depending on the seniority of the function, because today we're not involved as founders in every, every hiring uh, process anymore. And so you force all those stakeholders to really think about the position. And sometimes you have to conclude, well, actually, we have that person already internally. Or we can promote someone. We, we really believe in promoting our people. We really want to grow our talent also internally. So we would always also give opportunities first to people internally. Other companies are actually externally focused, which is perfectly fair, but we are very internally focused in, in promoting people. And so in that process, you sometimes kill position and you don't, you don't proceed. So for the scorecards you withhold, you will then work on a job description, which comes out of that scorecard, right? And so you eventually then will publish this through a number of channels. We do both, or we, let's say we, we, we receive both inbound candidates. We get you know, a couple of tens every week, which, which is great. And then we also do outbound, right? So we also, we also hunt on LinkedIn on, on multiple sources uh, or uh, channels we also, we also hunt ourselves. And so once then you have a qualified pool of, of candidates, and of course things also can happen asynchronously, we, we start to, to do screening interviews, right? So we, these are interviews which typically last 20 minutes, max 30, so they're capped. And they're standardized in terms of questions we ask. The questions we ask have changed slightly over time, but broadly speaking, they're the four same questions that we try to ask. What are you really good at, professionally speaking? What are you not good at? What will your manager tell me about your performance Right? How was your performance on a one to 10 scale? Right? And then of course, we will, we will um, fill in some details about you know, availability um, timelines, right? like uh, potentially remuneration expectations and so on. And so by standardizing that process, you make sure that you can vet your candidates in a very objective way. And so that is of course, um, typically done by, by our HR team. And so then, the HR team will, with, will uh, withhold a number of candidates, of course, ideally a, a handful, so you can uh, eventually bring them to the next stage. And that's where the more the hiring manager will, will get involved, right? So the person eventually can also technically assess best the person and will do a more in-depth interview. And again, in that in-depth interview, we try to uh, standardize the questions. And of course, we add some questions specific uh, to, to the position as well. Then you work towards a number of candidates you're happy to go with. Um, for depending on the position, there may be some practical tests. Right? Think about developers; they, you know, the idea we fly them in for a, a one or two week gig with us, in which they, of course, can show their their skills in, in real time. Some of the, the the commercial folks they get in for, you know, a role play. Right. So eventually, we also try to to, to adjust the process a little bit to the position. But essentially, then you end up with a number of candidates you make an offer to. And that offer is always subject to a reference interview. So at the end of the process, when a candidate accepts, we will do both front door and potentially back door reference interviews 
with typically four to five previous managers or peers. Depending on the seniority, actually, that, that, that uh, set of uh, references can expand to um, up to 10 people. So we, we do really invest time in that. And it has occurred several times that we've discarded the candidate based on that. So my experience is that these reference interviews, they do pay off. Usually, there's, there's no red flags. But when there is red flags and you get comments like when asking, will you want to hire the person again or will you want to work again with the person? And it's quite neutral and not very convincing. To me, that's a big red flag. So again, that's also something I think relevant for, for everyone to understand that you know, the performance you have in any company may have been, you know, maybe will be looked at in, in the future as well. And so then, of course, when we find our one or multiple perfect candidates, the reference interviews are perfect. There may be some final negotiation on, on any, any conditions, um, but then we typically move quickly. We don't want to waste you know, anyone's um, time. We try to, to lock in the offer and, and, uh, and get started with the person uh, ASAP. Other than the job skills, what sort of things Novi got values from their team? This is more of on a cultural basis, I guess, if you want to use that word. Yeah, so we, we definitely, of course, during those interviews, we, we not only uh, test certain hard skills, we, of course, also get a good, good feeling on soft skills, which you know, we all know are equally important, uh, if not more important, right? And so in that, that's harder to test, right? Of course, reference interviews is a good example where, for instance, you do can test it because what's the best indication of, of someone who's actually you know, pleasant or collaborative uh, is, is, of course, speaking with the people he worked with uh, before, both reports and, and, and his managers. So we, we try to, 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 during that process, we also try to, to, to interview for a number of hiring uh, values we, we defined. First of all, we, we want to work with people with the highest level of integrity. So that means in financial services, of course, we're handling you know, millions of money on a daily basis. And we've learned that integrity is, 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 is a starting block there, right? Is the pillar which, which we, we build everything else on, on top of that. It means, for instance, if you find someone who is you know, highly skilled at what he or she does, um, but you have doubts of how that person will, you know, his, his, his standards when it comes to, to dealing with, for instance, an oversight or an error, right? I've wired 500K to the wrong customer, but I'm trying to, 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 uh, to cover it up and trying to solve it myself. And, you know, then, you know, everything gets worse. This kind of, of, of situation is obviously something which we, we try to avoid. And so we, we really try to, to work with the people with the highest uh, sense of integrity. We've also learned that you can be the best person right like technically however if you if you don't fit in in terms of, of you know col collaboration in terms of teamwork it's very difficult eventually this is still this is a team of teams and so everyone is, is expected to, to contribute uh, to, to to helping others as well succeed right and so that, that teamwork is something we, we definitely put a premium on and then of course attitude right is we work really hard right and so from that perspective, it's, 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 it's very important to attract the right talent and, and they're perhaps also being based in, in great locations like Barcelona, right? You sometimes also get the wrong applicants who want to be a tourist, right? Rather than, you know, putting their, their careers first. And so that's something we've learned the hard way where we've learned that eventually we want to have people who, of course, they find a healthy balance between 
a great lifestyle, which obviously is, is making things uh, sustainable, but we also want to have people who really want to build a career with us. And then in exchange, what I and, and you know, the, the team wants to offer them is, of course, the best uh, career experience of their lives. And that's something which we take very seriously. That's, that's fantastic. Novicap sounds like a great place to, to work for. You mentioned places like Barcelona. What's the, one of the things that Spain as a tech hub is uniquely good at? You've been there for, for a while, from the start, essentially. Yes, I've been here now for, for a number of years, and, and I'm wondering whether the answer could be different pre- and post-COVID-19. So we, we like to talk about tech hubs, right? And so the race for, for being the next... Uh, Silicon Valley has never really made much sense to me anyhow, right? So, especially because the reality that is going to be uh, and more realistic is, is, is that there's going to be a number of tech hubs over time, right? And so with COVID-19, we can even expect that the acceleration, right, of a global talent pool will probably lead to more hubs and less concentrated ones, right? So if you can work from anywhere, and especially developers, people with the right technical Uh, skills, they may just you know work remotely from from anywhere, um, not really needing them to, to be in one place. Now you can also assume that people, right, especially also even in tech, right, where, where things are, are digital, um, they may want to have in-person contact either with, with colleagues or, or or their customers, and so that indeed brings us to the question whether Spain can be one of those places where people want to be located, and so. In that process of, of you know, looking at that question, I would say it's important to distinguish between companies which build a global company from Spain and companies who target uh, Spain as a market. And if you're one of the latter, you're, you're, you know, you're a company targeting Spain, I think it's a no-brainer to be based in Spain. Right? It probably brings you to the discussion whichever always follows, is it Barcelona or, or Madrid and, and maybe in even another city, but let's come back to that later. So the factors you consider in, in, in both scenarios can be different, right? So in our case at Novicap, as I mentioned, you know, Spain was our first market, so it was a no-brainer to, to be based in Spain. We opened both Madrid and Barcelona offices and, and invest in both, right? So the first I would look at as, as any company um, considering Spain as a hub is, is the talent pool, right? Especially in tech, um, you, you need to hire uh, people, you need to find the right talent, and then especially quickly, right? So the tech talent pool in Spain is, is still quite fresh, say, compared to Berlin or to, to Silicon Valley. That, that's just reality, right? So that is not necessarily bad, but it also means that you may end up doing a lot of the training yourself. And so you asked me before, what are some of the, 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 you know, the, the, the skills we're also looking for in people? And I think if you get people who are new to startups, you really have to teach them some very basic startup or tech skills, right? Think about, for instance, If you're coming from, from Telefonica, you probably don't, I don't know, I, I may be wrong, but you may probably not know uh, how to use Google Drive, which is pretty much one thing that everyone who has been in tech for a number of years, you know, this is natural to them. It's like putting on a pair of shoes, right? And so I do know of companies in, in Spain which also decide I'm only going to hire employees who have had a previous experience in tech to avoid that learning curve. So that's a decision you, you may want to, you may want to contemplate. And so, of course, my hope is that over time, as a scale-up you will be able, or a startup, you, you will be able to recycle the talents coming from bigger tech companies, right? Like Google or Facebook, 
at the moment, what we see is that you can really hire devs from Facebook in Barcelona. I mean, sure, Facebook has an office in Barcelona, but the jobs that they, the, the careers that they create pretty much for those people are pretty basic for them, right? And so then on the international hiring side, I can definitely uh, confirm you can attract international talent in Spain. I think that is, that is a process which, which is, it creates a little bit of administration, a little bit of bureaucracy. That's definitely possible and that's great. And so in that process, again, going back to the attitude, right? It's important to attract the people you're importing. You want to bring the guys who actually are moving to Barcelona, to Madrid, to wherever you bring them for their careers, not to, to lay on the beach. Right? And so that, that's, that's something which, again, we've learned the hard, the hard way. But I think if you, if you do that a couple of times, you find the right talent. In the discussion of hubs, the natural next question after talent that comes up, or let's say drivers, of course, cost. Right? So naturally, as an entrepreneur, any you know, venture capital or, or you know, even a self-funded company, you have to look at, at, at cost very carefully. And given that or FTEs, right, uh, employees is, is going to be one of your main drivers of cost, you may want to hire them in Spain. It's true that developers today, they cost less right, than Berlin or London. But then again, over time, what I would expect is that it's going to level out because, and, and probably also accelerated by, by COVID-19, the talent pool is becoming global. So if you have then eventually someone who's based out of Spain who can, uh, contract for a Silicon Valley-based um, company, then eventually is also going to start to inflate salary. So I think these differences are going to are going to they're going to decrease over time. I think the the unfortunate thing about Spain is the red tape, right? Because the administration is the generally less business friendly and more bureaucracy that you find in the country, which also wastes a bit of your time as an entrepreneur, and in the end, also money. And in tech, if, if speed is really, or, or time is, is your most uh, scarce resource, including hiring and then the talent pool you have available, then I think you should also think twice. For instance, if you're, I, I had a question recently from an entrepreneur in Berlin, like, hey, should I shall build, build up my tech team in, in, in Barcelona? And I told him like, well, you know, you're an early stage company. You need to hire probably like five, seven devs, right? Like five, seven engineers you probably don't want to bother, right? Because you have the talent available in Berlin, it may cost you a little bit more, but you go quicker and you avoid some of the bureaucracy of, of having perhaps two offices and being in Spain. So I think that, you know, you need to find the right balance, but in any case, it's clear and that's great that you can build a great company out of Spain. Yes, absolutely. And the, there are many, many examples of, of scale-ups and even unicorns you know, in Spain. You mentioned uh, government and bureaucracy and red tape. Um, you advise the European Commission as an external expert. What's the role you think that government should play in innovation? It, it, it's a very interesting question and topic that I've, 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 I wasn't very familiar with until I indeed I, I got involved as, a, as an advisor to the European Commission. And so I originally got... Um, got involved in what I would, you know, this professional hobby, as I, as I would like to, to call it, is that the, the commission invited me in 2013 to help them roll out the future internet public-private partnership, which then later was, was followed up by what is called today Horizon 2020. And so, you know, this, this future internet public-private partnership is, is very much an expensive word for enabling 
the collaboration between the commission and the private tech stakeholders, right? The tech uh, startup community. And you have to imagine that at the commissions, you, know, you also see today, of course, with the ECB, who's you know, bailing out um, <laughs> companies and, and, and so on. Um, so the, the commissions is very resourceful, right? So they have literally budgets of hundreds of millions, if not billions. And so there's a lot of scrutiny not to waste that money, right? That the money lands with the right entrepreneurs, the best companies to, to drive this entrepreneurial renaissance in, in, in Europe, right? And so this program was refreshing and I decided to get involved because it delegated the granting of uh, first 150 million euros by third parties rather than the commission itself. And the reasoning behind that was that the commission neither has the skills nor the bandwidth to subgrant money directly to entrepreneurs. But simply my role in that, in, that, in that process was very much to vet for private partners, which included accelerators, venture capitalists, universities, and so on. And then oversee those partners in selecting the best tech entrepreneurs and tracking the results of the investments we were making. And so I recall, for instance, reviewing an application process of one of the partners that we were going to use, right? Which was a, uh, yeah, was a, let's say a, a consortium of, of partners, which included the university, included an accelerator and so on. And I realized that many of the applications um, they were getting for some of those grants we were going to distribute were coming pretty much from consulting firms. So just you know, typical small size consulting firms who were presenting themselves in a very strategic way as a tech company, um, hoping to score some of the public funding available. And of course, they were just going to cover their R&D expenses and, and uh, reap some of, of, the, of, of the tax money available. And so when I spotted that, and of course, as an entrepreneur myself, I can spot these differences or these, these, uh, these elements very, very, very rapidly between a consulting firm pitching itself as, as, as a new app versus a real entrepreneur who is, you know, really could, could benefit um, from the proceeds. And so in that process, as an example, we, 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 we restructured the application procedures, for instance, looking at the incorporation days, we looked at ownership structure, we looked at how the proceeds will be used, whether there's any side activities we will be used, uh, we, we, will be, we will be spotting. And so I think that the first results there are, are promising. It's obviously a bit early in tech to make, you know, uh, the, the sum already, but I think generally speaking, it's fantastic to see that the commission is open to industry experts, right? Helping them to bring an entrepreneurial view to how programs um, are designed and, and budgets are, are distributed. And if we look at different industries where governments and the commission, and also at a local member state level, where they've been heavily involved in subsidizing, right? And then having a catalyzing role, we can already see the first results. Take for instance, one industry which is doing really well in, in Europe at the moment, that's renewable energy more specifically wind energy. And I think actually now with COVID-19, you'll see hydrogen and other types of renewable energies also getting that boost from governments, which is great. So specifically in, in, in wind energy, right, renewable wind energy, you, you, you really see a Europe as the global leader. We are exporting our know-how, we are exporting or, or, or servicing goods in that industry. And initially there was a lot of scrutiny coming from um, even the industry itself, that the commission was, was heavily subsidizing the, the, the wind energy industry. And so 
Today, wind energy is a fully self-sustaining um, industry. It no longer needs subsidies, and we're exporting that 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 R and D in all parts of the world. And I think that that's a great a great example of where government government initiatives indeed can can, can pay off. Would you summarize it then as governments can offer capital when there is no clear path for private capital? I think a lot of the innovation just takes time. And that's actually also, that's a, that, that's, that's a reality in, in, in many technologies which, which, are, which are new. And so wind energy is a very good example where you needed that level playing field and, and it took indeed um, several years to get there. But right now the output of, of, of wind energy is, is, is profitable. And from that perspective also, there may be certain industries where potentially even you know, strategically as the European Union, you could say, okay, we want to build up more expertise in AI. You may want to subsidize some of the investments going into that uh, space for a number of years. And that, then that can be done via grants, it can be done via co-investment, that can be done via being an LP, right, European Investment Fund, in, in a venture capitalist. So there's multiple paths of doing that. And of course, wind was very specific because it's a bit different than you know, the typical tech venture capital back type of company. So the investments had to be organized differently. But in our space, I think also the instruments that can be used are, are, are much more diverse in, in tech investing. Let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about the future of FinTech. From your experience, where's the industry going? Um, and I really liked how you thought about the future of Spain as a tech hub pre-COVID and post-COVID. How's that like for fintech? Fintech is very wide, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to limit my my answer and, and explanation more to to my field, right? Which is is a me finance. So history will tell because we're still in the midst of this this crisis, right? It's still unfolding and, and it's it's unprecedented. And I know everyone has heard that word a hundred times by now and, and is really fed up with it, but it's really unprecedented. So I think. There's a few things that we will learn from COVID-19, which are related to fintech, but also in at our company, Novicap, we've somehow also gotten this front seat to see it unfold because we, of course, look at the real economy, we look at business finance, we look at how companies are doing. So I think we're getting a good read on, on the situation. So I think right now, of course, the governments, central banks have, have taken out the bazooka, the amount of of, of, of money, right? I mean, there was obviously a clear liquidity crunch in March, but the amount of, of um, money that is being uh, printed right now to keep the markets going, at least temporarily, is, uh, is, is totally unprecedented, right? So that, that's, uh, that's bringing up all sorts of questions, how, how that debt is gonna be repaid, right? You may even wonder why you're paying taxes if, if it's so easy to, to, uh, to print money, right? But so, I'm not saying that is necessarily bad, and I think we, we should use it in the right as as a, as a great as a great leverage, right, to to uh, to sustain growth, um, remove inequality, and so on. However, I think everyone is starting to feel there's gonna be some correction that has to has to happen, right? And we still tend to disagree when, how badly. What they will likely look like is that many countries will start to struggle to pay back this debt that is being generated. And it very much starts to smell like the, the previous sovereign debt crisis, with all the consequences we've seen, but also potentially opportunities for fintech, including alternative lending and so on. We also at the same time see is that the big winners 
are the billionaires, right? And especially the, the US tech billionaires, right? Jeff, Amazon, Bezos, I think gained like about 44 billion over the last months. And so that happened at the same time when you know, the entire US economy was struggling, right? And so that US billionaire wealth, if you, if you track it down, it increased twice as much as the federal, right, the Fed paid out to this uh, one-time stimulus uh, packages to 150 million Americans. And that level of inequality is, is then, again, growing as a consequence. And we've already seen the US with all the unrest uh, related to Black Lives Matter. I can only imagine that discussion around the inequality and potentially also um, businesses that, that flow out of this will, will, will light up again, right? Universal basic income. It's been an idea that's around for a very long time. I think that that, that discussion is gonna, gonna come back uh, quite, quite a bit. So in, in, in these months, we've seen that the banks have been doing well. Right? They've been passing what essentially is risk-free credit to the economy while making a profit. And so I think many fintechs have realized that being too big to fail is still, is still a very big um, advantage. And being systemically important, it, it does pay off in, in such a situation. So fintech, at least in Europe, hadn't really reached the, the, you know, that scale to be, to be systemically important, right? And so we haven't really benefited that much from government and central bank support. In the US, the situation has been quite different. In fact, we've seen some companies like Cabbage, Omdeck, right, that passed these PPP loans into the economy very very effectively. So to, as an example, Cabbage was the, the third biggest um, lender in the Paycheck Protection Program program in, in the US. And I think that they've, 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 they've managed to do like more than 200,000 uh, loan applications that they've processed essentially. So that, that's totally massive and we haven't seen that in Europe. So from that perspective, economies also react differently. Now, in any case, and, and this is of course great news to anyone in tech, besides that you know, the, the stocks in tech are doing really well, technology and also technology startups will do great. Even though there's gonna be a temporary lower um, spend in technology, because typically it drops double digits during a 10 to 20%, I would say, during, during a recession. Companies spend less on, on everything, including technology. However, um, it's still, very clear, I think, to everyone that, that you need technology not only to, to drive your digital transformation, right? But also that a number of new models will, will, will emerge. And so going back to my field, my, my, my business, so the recovery seems V-shaped. We, we yet have to see, of course, what happens after summer, but it seems V-shaped. The opportunities are likely still a little bit ahead of us. Over the midterm, there's still a bit of, of this artificial credit supply coming from banks that's going to dry up. And that's also the feedback we're getting from many of our advisors and, and partners. And so then what's going to happen is that many banks will start rejecting some of our potential customers. And when that happens, of course, we'll be ready and, and, and go on, on the offensive. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Federico. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation. All right, well, thanks a lot for, for having me. And uh, I would say mask up, uh, stay healthy and uh, keep doing good. Hey, this is Gons again. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to Ctable.com. Ctable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.